This morning we're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. So you can see that on page 6 of your bulletin where we'll go. And in this part of Luke's Gospel, people keep coming to Jesus with questions and with demands and with suggestions and with requests. And with all those things, He's not distracted from His task, which is simple but not easy. His task is to get to Jerusalem. That's where He's going. In fact, He alludes here to that specific goal because there in Jerusalem, He intends to accomplish salvation. So as He goes, He teaches some things about the nature of salvation in the kingdom of God. This is what we read in Luke 13, verse 22. Jesus went on His way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to Him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And He said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our hearts are much distracted by things that take our attention away from You, and yet You've given us Your Word, and You've given us Your Spirit, and You've given us a call to worship. You've invited us to come and gather together around Your Word and to listen and to consider and to see the work of Your Spirit in our lives, and we pray that You would allow us that privilege, allow us to see that, allow us to hear Your Word, allow us to to recognize You speaking to us through Scripture and make us new in ways this morning that we don't expect. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Can you be seated. <clears throat> it was many months ago, really, but only a few chapters ago that we were in Luke chapter 9 in this Gospel. And if, if you can think back to 
I think it was last spring, actually, when we were there, many, many sermonic um, uh, rabbit trails since then. But back in Luke chapter 9, we read how Luke explained very intentionally that as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He, he set his face for Jerusalem. And so the way Luke has arranged his gospel account, chapter 9 through chapter 18 or 19 or so, is Luke's travel narrative. It's, it's Luke's account of Jesus traveling towards Jerusalem with, with salvific intent. This is Luke's emphasis. And here he reminds us of it. These crowds are gathering and following after Jesus as he teaches about the kingdom of God. And one person in the crowd chimes in with a question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? It's not just a yes or no question, although it is that. It's not just that. It's, it's a question with, I think, some suspicion behind it. Because this, this person asking the question is surely Jewish, an Israelite. And the Jews believed that all the Israelites would be saved. In fact, the Apostle Paul would agree with them in Romans chapter 9. He, he says there that all Israel will be saved. But, Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And that's the aroma that this person apparently had sniffed out from Jesus' words because Jesus' words have indicated to this point that it's not automatic. Just because you're born a Jew does not mean that you'll see the kingdom of God. Just because you're born into the church does not mean that you'll see the kingdom of God. Just because you're born into a Christian family does not mean that you'll see the kingdom of God. There's some work to do. And so Jesus doesn't answer this yes or no question with a yes or a no. It's not that simple. On the one hand, the answer is, yes, fewer of your countrymen than you think will see the kingdom of God. On the other hand, the answer is no. More than you can imagine will see the kingdom of God. will see its salvation. The answer that this man needs to hear is whatever the number of those who are saved is, you just be sure that you're among them. I think that's Jesus' exhortation to him here because when you consider salvation in the kingdom of God, you should see a number of things. You should see that its door is narrow. Its door is narrow. Verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door, Jesus answered this one. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You're asking, is it going to be few or is it going to be many? And Jesus says, the many are those who are seeking to enter into the kingdom of God. Those are many. In fact, everyone wants in. Everyone does. Not just people in first century Palestine and Galilee or Judea. Not just those people, but everyone throughout the history of the world. Even until today, right here in this theater, everyone wants in, everyone seeks to enter into the kingdom of God. All that you do 
And all that you say in this life, whether good or bad, whether respectable or scornful, whether public or secret, all that you do is an effort to get in to the kingdom of God. That's the way that your heart is inclined. Many will seek to enter, but won't be able because the door is narrow. The door is narrow, Jesus says. And this is, of course, a very significant stumbling block in our day and age. I mean, it was evidently in Jesus' day too. The world doesn't like narrowness, or so it thinks. It actually does. But it says it doesn't. This uh, week there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that someone forwarded to me, written by a couple of professors at Villanova University, and it's a Catholic university. These professors were lamenting a new policy on campus in which at the end of a semester, the course evaluations given to students to fill out about their professor and about the course will include questions about bias. Was the professor biased for one point of view or against another? Did the professor take sides in regard to something that that professor taught? In other words, was the professor narrow? And these two professors who wrote the article explained it this way. They said, for many decades, our mission as a Catholic university has been to lead students into the life of the mind, encouraging them to seek the good, the true, and the beautiful. But this new dogma places that entire undertaking in danger. No longer can professors challenge ideas as though they may be true or false. It's just not allowed. You have to be unbiased. You can't be narrow. And that's the way of the world. But it's not the way of the gospel. It's not the way of the gospel because the narrow door is Jesus himself. What did he say? He said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Is that narrow? You bet it is. It is narrow. It's completely narrow, and you can't escape that. I mean, the world suggests that God must be inclusive. If if there is a God out there, that God must be inclusive of whatever people may or may not believe about life and reality. But what people don't realize in saying that is that's a very particular view of God. That's an exclusive view of God, in fact. You can't escape exclusivity at all. It's a very particular view of mankind as well because many presume to enter into the kingdom of God on their own terms, according to their own self-definitions, according to their own presumptions. And people have all kinds of presumptions. Some of these presumptions begin to pile up as Jesus explains in verse 25. He says, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he'll answer you, I don't know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. You might put it this way. We ate and drank in your presence. Lord, we came to church. We came to the synagogue. We were 
around the exercises of religion as far as we could tell we were outwardly associated with you we jumped through the hoops and did the things that we saw people doing we ate and we drank in your presence and what's more you also taught in our streets in other words we we listened we we heard your teaching we paid attention to to the things that you taught and and we digested some of it we think and and, and we can even talk some theological shop talk we we can we can think some theological thoughts. We can define premillennialism and superlapsarianism, Jesus. We can talk the shop talk because we, we heard you teach in our streets. We know all the buzzwords. We know all the lingo. But, verse 27, Jesus says, but the master of the house will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. And then there's one more presumption that he points out to them. Verse 28, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves cast out. That's not, I think, just a description of hell. The weeping is sorrow and grief and regret. And the gnashing of teeth is anger. And those are the responses that these people have because of their presumption. What, what are they angry about? Well, they see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom of God, and they're out. And that's not fair. Because those were our guys. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets, those were our guys, Jesus. We associated with them. We associated with the right people. So don't tell us that we're out. The presumption is that we knew all about God. And wasn't that enough? No. Because knowledge about God is never enough. As you read the Scriptures and recognize the Gospel, knowledge about God is never enough. When Jesus went to answer the question initially, what what did He say? Where did He begin in verse 24? He said, Strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive. The word strive is is the word from which we get our word agonize. Agonize. Make great effort. Strive to enter through the narrow door. There's some work to do for you. You can't just presume upon these various things. Paul wrote to the Philippians the same sort of thing when he, he wrote, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. And I think Jesus and Paul in saying these things, neither one of them, means that you'll gain your salvation by your good works. We, we know that from Scripture. We, just, we know that's true. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, it's by grace that you are saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. And Paul goes on there to, to explain to them that you, weren't, you were not saved by good works. You were saved for good works. God established good works for you to do from all eternity. But those... They come after salvation comes, but strive and continue with Christ and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Demonstrate that not you know God, but that God knows you. Demonstrate those things by striving. So the door is narrow in scope. And that scope is Jesus. The door is Jesus Himself. But it's also narrow in opportunity. Verse 25 Jesus goes on to say, when once the master of the house has 
risen and shut the door. The assumption is the door is going to be shut, right? Obviously, at some point, the door is going to be shut. It won't be open forever. So don't presume that it will. Some of you have read C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters. It's a great uh, and interesting, fascinating writing about, about uh, the perspective of demons as they try to combat the coming of the kingdom of God. And at one point, some apprentice demons are being tested for their savvy and they're asked this question, how will you go about keeping people out of the kingdom of God? And one demon answers that question saying, I'll just tell people there is no heaven. And the superior demon answers and critiques him. He says, that will never work because people know there's a heaven. In their heart of hearts, they know there's something better than what they have and and they know there's a heaven that'll never work. So the second demon comes and says, well, then I'll, I'll just tell people there's no hell. There's no such thing as eternal damnation. There's no such thing as eternal punishment. There is no hell. And the superior demon says, no, that won't work either because they know. They know in their heart of hearts there is such a thing as hell. That will never work. And so the third demon, the savvy one, comes and he says, I'll just tell people there's no hurry. There's no hurry. And the superior demon says, that will work. If people think there's no hurry, they can take their time all they want. There's no rush. There's no concern at all. I'll just wait until the end of my days and then I'll make things right. There's no hurry at all. That that will work, the demon says. The door will shut at some point. Don't be presumptuous. The question is, will those who are saved be few? The answer is yes and no. Verse 29, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. There will be people there from everywhere, from every nation and tribe and people and language because being first in the line of redemptive history does not guarantee that you won't be last standing outside the door. Salvation's door is narrow because it's Jesus. And also, salvation's fulfillment is certain. Verse 31, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And so the lesson about salvation in the kingdom of God continues here. Some Pharisees come to Jesus, and they have a suggestion, maybe a request, maybe a demand, however you might put it, as these Pharisees would come and speak to Jesus. I doubt Knowing the Pharisees and their portrayal in Scripture, I doubt that these particular Pharisees were trying to do Jesus a favor. I kind of doubt it. Herod, who they warned him about, was a tetrarch. That means he was a local ruler, one of several. He was one of several sons of Herod the Great, who had ruled when Jesus was born. And this Herod, the tetrarch, had killed John the Baptist had had him beheaded. And now this Herod feared that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And so in John 14, we read about how this Herod was concerned that 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 was the case and, and he feared for his life. And so surely he did want Jesus dead. So the Pharisees are giving Jesus some true information. I just don't think 
but they're doing it for good motives. These Pharisees, they want Jesus to leave Galilee and go on down south because down south in Jerusalem, they have power and they have influence and they can destroy Him. That's their intent, at least. What are they doing? What are they doing here? Well, they're fulfilling a prophecy, a prophecy that you heard earlier from Psalm 2. A prophecy that suggests that these are raging and plotting and taking counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. That's exactly what Psalm 2 tells us from the Old Testament. These Pharisees and Herod too are trying to stop Jesus. They're trying to stand in His way. They're trying to intimidate Him because that's what the world does. And it still does it. You know, if you, if you declare today that Jesus is exclusively the only way to God, the world's going to kick back against that pretty hard, isn't it? It's going to dispute with you. It's going to seek to intimidate you and ridicule you and call you names. It's going to try to intimidate you. If you suggest that even the most noble man or woman in this world needs salvation, the world will kick back against you. They'll lean against that. They'll try to intimidate you and suggest that some people really are good. And if you state that God designs man, male, and female as distinct genders in this world, you can't possibly state that without the world trying to intimidate you, to stand in your way, to, to stop you. But how does God respond to that? It, when, when this intimidation effort comes from these Pharisees and from Herod and, and to God in Psalm 2, how does God respond? Is He intimidated by it? No, not at all. In Psalm 2, when the nations rage and plot and take counsel against God, what does the psalmist tell us that God does? He sits in the heavens and laughs. He holds them in derision. And so, when Herod and the Pharisees rage and plot and take counsel against Him, how does Jesus respond here? He's just consistent with the Old Testament narrative of redemptive history, isn't He? Is He intimidated? No, He's not at all. Because He knows that His plan to accomplish salvation will be fulfilled. Verse 32, And so Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Go and tell that fox. I don't think he's complimenting Herod. I don't think he's being particularly respectful and frankly of the, the local ruler here. Fox is not a compliment. A fox is a, is a, a little thief who preys on the weak. It's a term of derision. It's mockery and laughter at Herod. Whatever Herod that fox wants to do, let him do it. This is basically what Jesus is saying here. And likewise, whatever you Pharisees want to do, go ahead and do it. I don't care. Go ahead and do it. He suggests to them, I'm going to do my work today and tomorrow and then I'm going to finish my course. I'm not worried about you. But we sometimes worry, don't we? I mean, we, 
you worry and stress and strain about all the, the wrong around us, and we take upon our own shoulders the weight of everything being made right. Sometimes we, we do that. We all have a great temptation to take on a Messiah complex. Maybe you've felt that in yourself before. We, we assume that if I don't do it right, then it's not going to get done right. The world's going to go to hell in a handbasket, as we say, and I'm the Messiah. We wouldn't say that, but we think it and we act like it. I'm the one that needs to do it. And we take all that weight upon our own, our own shoulders and we stress and we strain. But, but the question is, do we really think that the evils of this world can stop the fulfillment of salvation in the kingdom of God? It can't. Diocletian was the emperor of the Roman Empire in the, the third century AD, and he carried out a very heavy, heavy, heavy persecution against the Christians in his days in power. And he thought that he had eradicated the church. I guess the church went underground, and he thought that he had eradicated the church, and he had a coin minted that, that declared Christ, the Christian religion is destroyed, and the worship of the Roman gods is restored. He minted a coin that declared that. And then when Diocletian died, there were more Christians in the Roman Empire than there were when he started. He's not the last one to experience that. Of course, in China, Mao Zedong tried as he could to persecute and eliminate the church from China. And there are more Christians in China now than perhaps any other country on the face of the earth. And in Cambodia, Pol Pot, around the same time, decades ago, tried and tried as he would to eliminate all of his enemies, including Christians and the church in Cambodia. And in the end, God laughs because the church continues to grow, even under the threat and pressure of persecution. Those people should have listened to the words of Theodore Beza, who was one of the reformers in the times of the Reformation, a French reformer, Theodore Beza, wrote these words in a letter to uh, a politician. He wrote, It is the lot of the church of God to endure blows and not to strike them. But the church of God is an anvil that remains and the hammers are all worn out. I don't know if any of you are metal workers, but if you ever worked on an anvil with some metal, you know what an anvil is all about, the hammer bangs on that anvil to shape and bend and change the metal, and the anvil just stays while the hammers go out to the trash pit because the hammers wear out on the anvil. Beza says the church is the anvil, and the world is the hammer, and the world wears out. Jesus says the world, take your best shot, but as for me, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day after, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem." He's sort of speaking tongue-in-cheek here. It's a bit ironic here. There's some sarcasm. I think what he's, he's saying here that a prophet can't possibly perish away from Jerusalem. He's simply saying, I'm going to the cross. I'm on my way to the cross. He has confidence in the sovereign power of God. After all, God had said, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will make the nations his heritage the ends of the earth, His possession from east and west and from north and south, they will come and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. 
because the fulfillment of salvation in the kingdom of God is certain. And that means that its neglect is tragic. Verse 34, Jesus turns His attention to the tenderness of His heart and His concern for His people. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Herod was a fox, a little fox who preys on the weak. But Jesus would have gathered them under His wings to protect them. And that's an Old Testament theme, of course. The Old Testament speaks of God as a mother hen. Psalm 91, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He will cover you with His pinions, that is, with His, his flight feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. That's, that's the picture of God from the Old Testament. And Jesus is simply drawing on that. The, the Jews were troubled by Herod because he was a problem. But they had no idea. There was a much greater fox behind Herod, a much greater enemy that Herod simply manifested in his own efforts to persecute them. But what does Jesus find when he comes to his people? He finds unbelief. And it's tragic. It breaks Jesus' heart here. You can, you can tell that because of the repetition of the names. Oh, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And you see that in different places in Scripture. In the Old Testament, when King David hears the news of his son Absalom's death, Absalom having rebelled against the king, and David responds, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son. The, the repetition is is his, his compassion, his broken heart for his son. Jesus to Martha, 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 why are you so concerned about these things? Jesus to, to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan intends to sift you as wheat. The name repetition is the compassion of God for his people. And now Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've killed the prophets. You've You've stoned those sent to you. Do you not know I would have taken you in? I would have protected you from that fox. Not from Herod, but from Satan. From, from the fox, I would have protected you. The neglect of salvation in the kingdom of God is tragic because God is so willing to provide it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Isaiah, way back in the Old Testament, had said the same. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Come to me, God says, and hear that your soul may live. And the Apostle Peter, much, much later, said the same thing. He said, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's love is tender, and it's generous, and it's abundant, and it's ready. And so, if you don't know that love, it's because you're not willing. That's what Jesus 
says here, doesn't he? And you were not willing. Here I was ready to take you in. I'm here. And yet you are not willing. If you don't know the love of Jesus in the Gospel, it's because you simply are not willing. Like a, like a chick. You'd rather chase after that worm or you'd rather scatter after that seed while the fox approaches. Or sometimes Christians themselves get themselves tied up in theological knots, asking, not are those who are saved few, but rather, what if I'm not among them? You know, sometimes we get, get wrapped up in the, the theological questions of God's sovereignty and predestination. We begin to wonder, and when we do, there's always some reason underlying it of our own guilt and cause for doubt, but we begin to wonder, what if I'm not among them? What if I'm not one of those? Well, strive for the narrow door. Strive to, to look for the fruit that God would bear in your life if you would trust Him. But as you do that, look at Jesus here and see what He's portraying Himself to be. He is ready and willing to gather you under His wings. So come. Come. Salvation in the kingdom of God is of a very particular nature. We, we can see it here. Its door is narrow. Only by the righteousness of Christ alone can anyone enter. And its fulfillment is certain. God is sovereign over His plan. No scheming of this world can stand in His way. And therefore, to neglect it, to, to neglect salvation in the kingdom of God is tragic. It's just tragic. Because the love of the Father is abundant. The love of the Father is generous. The love of the Father is ready. The love of the Father is willing to take you in and offer refuge. So come and find and know and taste salvation in the kingdom of God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray that you would allow us to recognize these things, that you would cause us to see and know the nature of salvation in your kingdom, and that we would trust you for it, knowing that in the righteousness of Christ, we have all the hope and the confidence and the certainty that we need. Father, as we come to the communion table, would you grant to us more and more of that, would you communicate to us and apply to us your grace through the bread and the wine and cause us to see that you have loved us in Jesus so that we might love you in return. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.